going to pick it up in verse 19 and read down to verse 34. To John 1, 19. <clears throat> It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to tie, to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, before we uh, get into your word, we just, uh, just want to take a moment and just to pray uh, for our dear sister, uh, Twyla, uh, who is uh, not doing well and has been uh, diagnosed with uh, Lyme's disease and is at home recovering now. And we, Lord, we lift up our hearts to her and we pray that you would help her, help her to recover we pray that, uh, that she would, uh, that her condition would not get any worse. We pray that she would continue to entrust all her hope upon the Savior who died on the cross for her sins. Lord, and we also just uh, lift up our hearts and we pray, we continue to pray for uh, our dear brother, uh, Jed. We pray that you would sustain him and help him and strengthen him and especially Sharon, as she takes care of her beloved husband. Father, we pray right now for your word. We thank you for your word because of the, it gives us life. And we pray that by your, the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word would bear fruit in our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would remove any distractions, Lord, that may be in our hearts and in our minds, God, and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and what your word says to us this morning. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we concluded what's sort of the, the foreword to the Gospel of John, which ran from verses 1 to 18. And I hope that that's built a solid foundation for us as we continue now to proceed through the rest of the book. And now, especially now as we transition to the, the actual narrative of the Gospel of John. And this narrative will then begins with a testimony of John. Now, when Christians think of the word or hear the word testimony, they normally think of one's personal testimony of how the Lord worked in their life and how the Lord saved them, right? So each of you have a unique and personal story of how the Lord saved you, and they're glorious because of the gospel. But the testimony of John is very, very different. John the Baptist, what I hope you'll see in the passage, is that he was very, very good at directing attention away from himself and towards the one who really mattered, and that is Jesus Christ. And that could be hard for us to do at times, even with our personal testimonies. Time Magazine reported in 2013 that narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older. 50% more college students scored higher on the narcissistic scale in 2009 than in 1982. So just that we're all, we're all on the same page, narcissistic personality disorder is defined as a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance and a deep need for excessive attention and admiration. Now, I am not in any way implying that any of us here fit that description or category or flaunts that, that statistic, but what I'm saying is that narcissism is so prevalent in our culture that I think it does, in a lot of ways, trickle down into our churches and even in our own personal lives. And even in thinking about our personal testimonies, what's the highlight of our testimony? Right? Are we making much of Jesus Christ or are we making much of ourselves? Or a good diagnostic question to ask yourself at this stage in life and, and how things are going in my life right now, am I making much of Jesus Christ or am I making much of myself? Is Jesus central to my life or is Jesus Christ just something that happened at some point in my life, a one-time event, and that's it? John the Baptist does an incredible job of pointing people to Jesus Christ. And what he does is he, he makes himself less in order to make much of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he reveals to his audience who is the Savior of the world. So let's walk through the passage. And the, the first thing that we see in this long, in this long section is that there is this, this examination of John the Baptist. And in this first section, it runs from verses 19 to 28. And this is sort of the, the question and answer section, because John is the subject of, the, of an examination, and six times he's questioned about who he is, and one time, or five times he's questioned about who he is, and one time he's questioned about what exactly is he doing. And one of the many things that I love about the Bible, it always asks good questions, and, it, and, and a narrative text like this one, good questions tend to move the story forward, and that's what we see here. And the section begins by telling us that the following is the testimony of John. So the Jews had sent priests and Levites to John the Baptist to learn a little bit more about this, this fellow who seems who's just baptizing people. And so they ask, who are you? And to which he confesses that he's not the Christ. 
know, I don't know about real life, but in the movies anyway, or in television, when there is uh, an examination or an interrogation of an individual, right, it usually takes a lot of time and energy in order to try to get the, to the truth of the matter, to get the person to confess, right? But here in John, there's, there's no waiting around. He immediately tells them that I am not the Christ. And that's a kind of a, a strange way to respond to that question. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Now, why in the world would he respond in that way? Well, his response lets the reader know that he, is, he really understands what these particular individuals are trying to get at. They're trying to figure out whether or not John is the Christ. Before the divine word took on human flesh, about 400 years, by the time before we get to the, the New Testament, this, this intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, there was about 400 years with no prophetic, no prophetic voice in the land. That's 400 years without a prophet, without somebody speaking the direct words of God through a human instrument. And so for a long time, people have not heard from, directly from the Lord. And so at this point, when John the Baptist enters the stage, there were high expectations that the Christ would be revealed at some point soon, and the people were eager to hear from the Lord himself. There was an expectation that the Christ would be this Davidic figure, one from the royal line of data, but one who would be greater than King David. And this king would be anointed by God himself. He will deliver the Israelites from the Roman rule and oppression and bring them back into a land where they can flourish and prosper. That's kind of the general idea at this point. And knowing this, John immediately squashes any curiosity that the people might have about his identity. He says, I am not the Christ. Okay, well then, if you are not the Christ, then are you Elijah is the next question. And that John also denies. Now, why would they ask if John was Elijah? It's because of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So many of you know Elijah was one of the prophets of the Old Testament, one of the most distinguished of the Old Testament prophets. He, one of the many things he did was he raised the widow's son back to life. He had the epic showdown with the prophets of Baal up in the mountain. And Elijah never tasted death, right? When he was on the road walking with his protege, Elisha, they were separated by a chariot of fire. And, a, and it says, the scriptures tells that the, a whirlwind came and took up Elijah into heaven. And so probably because he never, he never saw death, there was an expectation that Elijah would return and become this herald of the living God. But John tells them he's not Elijah. Even though, as though it seems like he didn't really understand himself in that, in that particular way, but Jesus does say in one of the Gospels that, that John the Baptist was indeed an Elijah-like figure. So then, the Jews go on to ask, well then, are you the prophet? Now, what prophet could they be referring to? And the prophet is the one foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. 
and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Israelites were aware of the fact that this prophet would be like no other. Even though they have seen prophets after prophet, after generation after generation, they've seen the ministries of these different prophets, they've all understood that this is not the prophet, this is not the prophet, Elijah's not the prophet, Isaiah's not the prophet, Daniel's not the prophet, all these individuals are not the prophet. We're still waiting for this expected prophet that Moses told us about. But now, so they're expecting this prophet to come soon, but John tells them, I'm not the prophet. So they, they ask, well, then, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And this is how he responds. In verse 23, he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that we know who John is not. So then who is John? Well, notice what John does not say. He does, when he answers their question, he doesn't tell them, my name is John, my Parents are Elizabeth and Zechariah. I was born to the tribe of Levi, that I was born and raised up in such and such a place, and so on and so forth, right? He doesn't go into any of those details. And it's not that the person of John doesn't matter, but his identity is not really that all that important to him, and neither is it important to the ones who are examining him. Not so much as what he's there to do. His identity is, is, is wrapped up in what, he, is what, in what he's assigned to do. And his mission is his identity. And so he answers the question by quoting to them scripture, specifically from Isaiah 40, verse 3, where he says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's how John identifies himself, by his mission. Now, the book of Isaiah, specifically from chapters 40 to 55, the prophet makes several references and allusions all the way back to the exodus of the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt. And it's all intended to point the people toward a new exodus. For example, in Isaiah 52, 11, it says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear God. So John's quotation of Scripture falls into that particular context. John is pointing the Jews to his function, and that is he is one who is called to make straight the way of the Lord. So you could say that John's mission is to prepare the hearts and minds of the people for a new exodus. That is a, a, an, an exodus from slavery of sin and condemnation and judgment. And so Jesus, right, Jesus is the one who makes a direct way for us. He, he clears out a straight path for us to have access, direct access to the Heavenly Father through Him. So because of Jesus, there's no more need for sacrifices. All of God's people can have direct access to the Lord. So Jesus does, in fact, give us a new exodus. And that is what John was intending with his mission right, to prepare the people for this incredible new exodus. In John 14, 6, Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 1, 51, 
Jesus also says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So John tells the Jews that he is the voice of one who cries out to make, to clear out a path for the coming king who will give us access, direct access to the Father. However, his answer to, to the priests and the Levites is unsatisfactory because they then go on to ask in verse 25 of John 1, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, why is there a question about his authority to baptize and what does this have to do with, what does that authority have to do with his baptizing? Well, the Christ and Elijah and the prophets were all understood to be these end time figures. That is that the Israelites believed that as the end of all things draws near, as we enter into the last days, that these individuals would appear. And how would they know, in fact, that these individuals have appeared? And that is that they would call the people back to repentance, just like the prophets of old have done. And that is to, to exhort and rebuke and encourage the people to return to the Lord their God. And so for them, one of the clear indicators that we transition into the end times is when somebody comes and begins proclaiming a, 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 a message of repentance, right? And what was John doing other than baptizing people? He was also proclaiming and exhorting people to return to the Lord, to repent of their sins. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if the kingdom of heaven is come, then the times have officially transitioned to the last days. So John was calling the people to repent, and those who believed in his message were baptized in response to their faith in his message. Because they believed that, yes, the kingdom of God is, is here. But the underlying presumption is that John does not actually have any authority to baptize anybody because he's not one of these three expected individuals, right? If you're one of these three, then you're baptizing. You're not one of these three individuals, so then why are you baptizing? Right, and John doesn't answer their question about why he's baptizing or where his authority come from. Not, not directly anyway, not at this point. Instead, he, as he continues to do from the very beginning, he points attention away from himself and directs their attention to the one that they should be looking for and anticipating. And this person... It's one who is greater than John because John says he existed before John. This person had always existed. There was never a time in which this greater person had, had, there was never a time when this person never existed. And so he keeps pointing to this coming king, one who says that he is not worthy to untie the straps of his sandal. In other words, what he's saying that he's not even worthy to be his slave. And all these questions led to the conclusion that this man is not the Christ. Neither is he Elijah, neither is he the prophet. But before we think that this is just an honest inquiry, perhaps even an inquiry filled with expectation and hope, check out the, the little comment in verse 24 of John 1. It says, in parentheses, now they, that is these Levites and Jews, these Levites and priests have been sent from the Pharisees. So 
the author wants us to know that it was the religious teachers who sent these Levites and priests to question John the Baptist about his identity. You see, John must have generated such a large crowd and following that the, that the Pharisees, that the religious teachers took notice. And so in response, they sent some representatives to John the Baptist to, to just figure out what in the world is going on here. Who is this guy who is baptizing people and calling people to repentance? Who is this guy? So the most devastating thing about this event is that these examiners were not necessarily looking for the Christ, but they were looking to see if John the Baptist needed to be silenced. Because if you read the Gospels, then you know the reputation of the Pharisees. They had a notorious reputation. Right? They were lovers of money and their reputation. They were lovers of money. They were egotistical. Jesus even calls them hypocrites. Now, were the Pharisees looking for the Christ? Yeah, I think they were looking and expecting for the Christ to show up. But the problem is that they had their own idea and interpretations of what the Christ would do and what he would look like. They thought that the Christ would enhance their reputation and not lessen it. The Pharisees were looking out more for themselves than they were for the Christ. So then when Christ does appear, they look at him and they say, that's, there's no way that's the Christ. And when they hear his teaching and his preaching, there's like, there's no way the Christ would not say these things. When they see him ministering to people and creating all these miracles, they still refuse to believe that this is in fact the Christ. And you know that John the Baptist actually picks up on this and their, and their cruel intentions and their ulterior motives because the moment that they show up to his baptism in Matthew, I think chapter 3, when they show up, he calls them, you brood of vipers. And so this little note in verse 24, I think, is a hint that points us to the coming animosity that we'll see between the Pharisees, that the Pharisees had towards Jesus and the rest of the gospel. So now that we know that who John is, or rather who he is not, we see now who the Christ is, and that is namely through John's witness of the Christ. So he says in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So now the lamb of God who is the Christ is revealed. And that statement should be a flashing neon sign to, to refer us back to the Old Testament. Because prior to Christ's death on the cross, in the Old Testament, we have a vivid description of a very similar event that actually points us to the dying Lamb of God. And that's found in the book of Exodus. So God, in the book of Exodus, was moments for rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, then in verse 3, it tells us, Till all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, 
and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the blood of the lamb functioned as a hedge of protection from the wrath of God that was coming. And so with the slaughter of the lamb at that moment, in that instant, God's people were reconciled with God. And so that lamb functioned as a way of atonement and reconciling to God. Hence, it's why it's called at one, right? At atonement at one. Jesus, or God, and his people are at one with the slaughtering of the lamb. And Jesus is now the lamb, not of the people, but the lamb of God, provided by God himself to make atonement for his people, to reconcile them back to God so that his people would be one with God, like they were created to. I think it's obvious that John's description of Jesus as being the lamb of God is informed by his knowledge of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3, talking about Jesus, it says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we had esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that it before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus is the Lamb of God who bore our sins, who was crushed for our iniquities so that we might be forgiven of our sins, so that we might be reconciled to God. So Jesus is the one who provides that direct access and relationship to God the Father. And it was this one that the Pharisees rejected. Jesus takes away the sins of the world. Right? And that doesn't mean the entire world without exception, but it means indiscriminately. John is saying that this salvation does not belong just to the Jews only, but it belongs to the Gentiles. It belongs to anyone who places their faith and trust upon the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Savior. He is the true prophet of God. And in his name is salvation. Lastly, we need to see the purpose of John's baptism. And it's here where, he, where John 
directly answers the question, by what authority does he go on baptizing people? So one, and John 1, 30, 31, it says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he, being Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So who gave authority to John to be baptizing people? It was God. Before John was born, an angel of the Lord visited his father with this startling announcement. In Luke 1, verse 8, Now while he, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience of the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that was the mission of John from the very beginning. John was baptizing on the authority of God himself. But even his baptizing people as a way to prepare the people for the coming king wasn't even the grand purpose behind his baptizing people. There was something much greater. And we see that in verse 31, where he says, I myself did not know him, that is the Christ, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, so that he might be revealed to Israel. So the purpose of John's baptism was, to, was, for that, was for, so that Christ would be revealed to the people. And how would baptizing the Christ reveal his identity to the people? Well, God told John that when he baptizes the Christ, the Spirit of God would descend on him like a dove and remain on him. And so that's what it says. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and it remained on him. Now notice that it says descend and remain. The Spirit does not come and go like he did in the past, like in the Old Testament, like we see so clearly in the book of Judges, but the Spirit, it says, remains upon him. That makes Jesus the first person indwelt in a permanent manner by the Spirit of God, and he would set the precedent for everybody else, for everyone else who believes in Jesus Christ, that they also would be indwelt in a permanent manner by the Spirit of God. And so this manifestation of the Spirit gave John the Baptist all the evidence that he needed to come to the conclusion, without a doubt, that this is, in fact, the Son of of God. But Jesus is God, right? So then why does he need the Spirit of God to descend upon him and remain upon him? And the reason is for assurance. The Spirit's descent upon Jesus and remaining on him gave assurance to Jesus of the love of God. In Matthew 3, 16, this is how it describes the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Second, it gives John the Baptist assurance that this is in fact the son of God. And thirdly, it gives the reader, that is us, assurance that this is in fact the Christ. Now, let me leave you with something to think about in terms of application. John the Baptist, in the very beginning, was good at directing attention away from himself and towards Jesus Christ. So even though he was a prophet, even though the angel of the Lord said himself that he will be great, even though he played an incredible role in salvation history, even though he attracted a large following and even many disciples, John never made it about himself, right? And it's so easy to be in that position and to make it all about yourself. But John never did that. He always directed people's attention to Christ. You could say that John the Baptist had his own personality disorder, selfless or self-effacing personality disorder. That is, it's not about me. Don't think about me. I'm not great. I'm not somebody special. I'm nobody of, of great value. You should be looking to Jesus. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the life giver. He's the lamb of God. He's your salvation. It's him you should be pointing, you should be looking to. Your purpose on this earth is to reflect your creator, and you are saved to point to Christ. God made you for himself, and you were saved for the glory of Jesus Christ. So think of your life as, as a mirror. When you shine a light on a mirror, it bounces off at a different angle. So is your life reflecting the light of Christ? Right, and our mirrors can be dirty, right? That's because we are still living in the flesh. We don't always want to please the Lord. Many times we sin. And many times we even forget that we're supposed to be reflecting the light of Christ, that we're supposed to be imaging the person of Christ in our lives. But this should compel us to be regularly confessing our sins before the Lord and trusting in His forgiveness. And there are times when we try to clean up the mirror ourselves, or you try to clean up a dirty mirror, or even just like a lens, uh, your glasses, and you try to remove the smudges, and it only makes things worse, right? Sometimes we try to clean up our lives by our own works, trying to earn that forgiveness, when we should be instead trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus paid it all. And the only thing that's left for us to do is just trust in his incredible forgiveness. And here's another question. Is your life reflecting something else other than Jesus Christ? Because the other thing about mirrors, as we all know, is that they also show us our reflection. When we look in the mirror, well, we see the person in the mirror. But we are called to reflect the image of Christ. So is your life reflecting something else other than Jesus Christ? Is your life reflecting yourself or someone else or something else? Sometimes we just need to reorient ourselves around Jesus Christ. And we can do that by humbling ourselves before the Lord. Think and meditate on the person of Jesus Christ. Think about the gospel. Pray to the Lord 
that he would help you to orient your life around him. Right? Does, when the world looks at you, do they see something different about you? Do they see the light of Christ? Though they may not describe it or identify it in those terms, but do people see the qualities and characteristics of somebody who lives in a Christ-like manner? Right? And I get that it's hard to do that at every waking moment, but are we pursuing that? And if we're not, I would encourage you to just meditate on the person of Jesus Christ, not only on what he came to do, but on who he is. As God, as creator, as savior, worship him because he is God. Thank him for his grace. And image that person of Christ in your life. And continue to just look at the, God, at the example of John the Baptist, always deflecting people's attention to Jesus Christ. He never, ever made it about himself. Right? And it's hard to do that perfectly. I'm surprised, quite frankly, that he was able to do that so well with so much attention, with so many eyes on him. But, you know, we're not called to be perfect, but we're called just to pursue that, to continue to point people to Christ with our lives, with our words, with our actions, because I, I love you all. You are all great, but internally, there's nothing all that great about us. What's great, the most great, the most wonderful thing about us is that Jesus Christ is in our hearts, and that is what we should be imaging forth to the, peop- to, to the world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, your word says that you are the light of the world. And you have saved us. You have called us into this marvelous light. Lord, and we, we come before you because uh, we acknowledge that we do not have light in ourselves, that any light that we do have comes from Jesus Christ in the gospel. Lord, and we also confess that sometimes, many times, we, we do a poor job of letting your light shine through us. So I pray that you would help us to to center our lives on Jesus Christ so that we may continue to grow in Christ-likeness and so that that Christ-likeness would be displayed to the world. Help us to make much of you and less about ourselves or other things. We thank you, Lord. You are wonderful. You are good to us. And we thank you because we can always come to you in confession and in repentance and that you restore us and you help us by the power of your spirit. We thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.